Another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. Now, this is another of my conference takeaways, where I sit down at the end of a conference with a fellow delegate to share our main takeaways for the benefit of people who are unable to attend the event. This time around, the event in question was Research Ed Blackpool, which was held in the Las Vegas of Lancashire on March the 24th, 2018. Now, this was my first ever Research Ed event, but it will certainly not be my last. As you will hear, the lineup of speakers is ridiculously good, and I know of no other way to tap into such a diverse wealth of experience and insight. I had a flipping great time. So, in this episode, you will hear takeaways from the sessions delivered by Baroness Estelle Morris, Tom Bennett, Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson, Mark Healy, Tom Sherrington, Harry Fletcher Wood, and some annoying maths bloke from Preston. A huge thanks to Research Head Blackpool organiser Simon Cox for organising such a wonderful event and squeezing out a few final drops of energy to talk to me for this podcast after such a long day. And a huge thanks to the living legend that is Tom Bennett for creating a movement which truly does have the power to change students and teachers' lives for the better all around the world. Enjoy. Okay, so Simon, before we dive into our takeaways from Research Ed, you're actually the man who's organised this entire event. So first off, how did, how did that come about and why did you volunteer for it? Well, basically we became a research school at the start of September last year. So the, the application process was, was uh, last academic year. Uh, we applied to become a research school, which was awarded to us from the EEF uh, in September. And we're one of the opportunity area research schools, which basically uh, means that we work in, in areas uh, of deprivation. So, so the idea of, of our research school is to help to share and disseminate sort of best practice, yeah. what the research evidence tells us, uh, to local schools, basically. So that the name can be a bit misleading sometimes. People think research school, you're doing loads of research. Ah, right. Okay. Not necessarily the case. You can do, obviously, you can you can do things uh, at a sort of uh, quite small level within your schools, but the main purpose of our of our research school is to help share and disseminate practice. And, and one of the ways that we do that is through training courses. So we run three-day training packages uh, for schools, usually based around the EEF uh, guidance reports. So the maths one that came out recently, we're delivering training around that. Um, we do blogs, we do newsletters, but also we do an annual conference. So... Um, Obviously, being sort of new to this, uh, we, we didn't want to make a hash of it. So we thought, right, for, first time through, uh, we're going to ask Tom Bennett if uh, we could get Research Ed on board. Uh, he said yes. Um, our CEO is Stephen Tierney, who tweets a lot as uh, at Leading Learner. He's, he's really big on Twitter. So through him, we've got a lot of contacts. We managed to get a lot of people uh, to join in. Uh, he runs something called Heads Round Table as well, which means that, you know, that they... Uh, uh, he had lots of lots of contacts that, that could come along and help us on the day, really. And it's um, like uh, I think we're both kind of making our research head debut, right? And mm, it's uh, mm. you as an you're organising it, and I'm speaking at it. Neither of us have been to one before. No, but they're, it, they're incredible events, right? Like the the I mean, this sounds really arrogant because I, I I'm not including me in this at all. But the caliber of speakers is a joke. How good they are! I mean, just just rattle off some of the names there. Oh, um, well, I mean, we had a keynote from Baroness Estelle Morris, obviously the former Secretary of State for Education. We had Tom Bennett, Tom Sherrington, uh, Vivian Porritt. We had Mark Healy. We had yourself, obviously, Craig. <laughs> uh, we we um, Harry Fletcher Wood. Um, Laura McInerney, the editor of Schools Week and writes for The Guardian. And, 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 them, and I've missed loads of people. And none there. of them are getting paid, right? Like Absolutely no, not a penny. No, it's, so it's all done off goodwill. And it's incredible. And the amount of, and how many teachers have we had here on this Saturday? Uh, almost 300 people. 300, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Right, well, let, let's dive into it. So we opening keynote was from uh, Baroness Estelle mm. Morris. My, my first ever Baroness, I've been in the company <laughs> of as well, so I was very happy about that. And it really, I don't know about you, Simon, but I thought it really set the tone nicely for the day. Um, she made the point that the world is changing. Teachers are far more engaged in evidence than it was when, when Estelle was teaching herself. And we've got the seeds of a movement, but, but we're not there yet. And there's some big challenges in kind of getting this evidence-based 
research into the mainstream and her challenges were um, the building up of evidence is slow teachers need a, a quick fix and often you don't get that you don't see the fruits of some of these strategies for some time and then I found this myself when I was writing the book um, evidence uh, changes and be contradictory so you, you read something and you think oh perfect I understand this I've got my head around this then you read another paper and it says the exact opposite thing and that can be frustrating because mm. I, I, I'm quite simple in the sense that I just like a nice clear consistent narrative and you don't often get that in, in the world of education and also that leadership is the key and I think that's been a frustration for a lot of people that you come away from a conference like this buzzing with ideas and then there's just barriers in place in school. So I thought it was a great introduction to the day. And I thought it set the scenes for what the challenges are. But then for me throughout the day, there's been kind of solutions uh, proposed. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I'd agree with that 100%. I mean, it's interesting what you said about, about um, evidence-informed practice being, being slow. Um, since we started working with the EEF, we, you know, we knew it was slow. We didn't realise how slow. You know, they do trials and... Um, you know the recruiting four years later the results yes, come out and it is that yes. slow so you've got you've got something that wants you know you want an evidence base behind it it's not going to come quickly uh, the other thing about leadership and she, she mentioned that evidence informed, informed practice is too frail to survive uh, unless it's got leadership support interesting to hear um, a lot of delegates today talking about the fact that maybe their leadership teams aren't on board yes um, a lot of people obviously bought their own ticket for today it's mm. not been done through school they paid out their own pocket they've come on a Saturday which is also in the holidays for a lot of people um, and I think that's really the key um, is getting the leadership teams on board and I think it's growing but it's growing slowly uh, but I think everything that produces long-term change does grow slowly and I think yes. if it, sometimes if it is too quick it can be you know it's a quick flash in the pan uh, and then it's gone and, and interesting to hear uh, Stephen T in his closing remarks at the end of the day where uh, he compared it to thunder and lightning he basically said today is lightning and it's our job to go away and try and turn this into thunder that sort of rolls throughout everything that we do I thought that was a really nice analogy to use I love that yeah yeah and it's again it's just it's just about doing small things like starting in your own classroom making little changes then just showing, just speaking to a colleague saying, I've tried this and look at the effect it's had. Get the kids talking about it as well. And it just grows and grows. I think you can't just march in Monday morning and say, right, straight knock on the head's door and say, we're completely changing everything. But you can make those small changes in, in your own classroom and it, it leads to big results. Absolutely. And I think it should be small changes as well. I think, you know, you don't want to go in Monday morning buzzing with ideas thinking I'm going to change 10 things about my yes. lessons because let's be honest, it's not sustainable. Absolutely. And by Wednesday, you'll, you'll, it'll go again uh, and I think that, that's the thing that I try to do in my teaching um, one thing I'll focus on this one thing I'll embed it weeks months you know and then maybe try and tweak something else and I think yes. that's really important is that is that slow build I agree and it's interesting and we're, we're getting a tiny bit off topic which is the norm on this <laughs> podcast um, I was blown away to be invited to be on the panel in the, in the middle of the middle of the day um, and one of the questions that was asked there is um, how do you get people on board with this and, and the, the point I made was that start with something small and actionable and I, I mentioned and I, I bang on about this all day long but the hypercorrection effect the idea that if you want to change if, if you want to start bringing in low stakes quizzes and spacing and interleaving they're fantastic but you're not possibly not going to see an immediate effect and if anything with desirable difficulties you're often going to see a negative effect it's going to lead to a dip in performance interleaving feels hard spacing feels hard so teachers if they're skeptical they're going to be like oh i'm not so sure about this you start to lose them but something like the hypercorrection effect which the way i do i bang on about this in the book but every time you give classwork to kids or homework to kids, get them to write a little confidence score out of 10 for how sure they are about each answer. That does two things. The first thing is, and I made this point today, um, I, I literally waste my breath when I say to kids, check your work, check your answers what in one ear, out the other. But by putting this little confidence score, it really makes them focus in um, and go back over their work. And then you have the hypercorrection effect where if a kid is really confident about an answer and puts a score of 9 or 10 by it, and then they find out that it's wrong, it's a real cognitive shock. And that hypercorrection effect says that errors made in high confidence lead to a bigger leap in learning than errors when you're not so sure. So if, for me, if you're looking for something small, actionable, that you'll see fairly immediate benefits to, that would be one research-based takeaway. And I think, as you've said, Simon, you've got to start small. If you try coming on Monday, I'm spacing, I'm interleaving, I'm low stakes and quizzing, I'm doing cognitive low theory, all this, 
it's just not sustainable. No. So a nice small thing. Perfect. Anyway, right, let's get back on track. So Tom Bennett was the, the first keynote. We both sat in on this session. Mm. Um, Tom Bennett's great. He's, he's been on the podcast before. Uh, the behaviours are. And there was a couple of real lovely things I thought from this. I don't, I don't know if you agree with me on this, Simon. But he said um, that if you ask anybody to define what's important for good behaviour, they'll say consistency and high expectations. But everyone knows this, and yet it's not happening. Like, behaviour is still a problem in a lot of schools. And Tom's point was that means lots of different things to, to different people in different contexts. And he used the, the example of the word punctual. If you say you want your kids to be punctual to lessons, does that mean arriving five minutes early, bang on time, just at the end of the bell, or five minutes late? Will that be considered punctual? So we need to define what the terms mean. I thought that was great. Another key takeaway for me, and I love this, was that teachers and also leaders need to get in front of the behaviour. You don't just start teaching and then bad behaviour happens and then you react to it. You need to preempt it, expect it, have procedures in place, get in front of the behaviour. So I thought that, that was crucial. And I guess his big message was that behaviour comes from culture. It's all about the culture. That's related to kind of getting in front of this behaviour. And he talked a lot that a lot of this culture comes from social norms, the power of doing what everybody else is doing. We look for cues to, to determine how we should behave. And Tom made the point, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but he said 90% of what we do should be routine. And it's not just a case of saying it. It's not just, and I love this, don't just put posters up on the wall to say this is how you should behave. It's not just a case of a head teacher sending an email around saying this is our new behavior policy. It's about carrying out these routines consistently, demonstrating it, practicing it, because this good behavior is learnable. And Tom said that what you permit, you promote. And I really, really, really liked that. So it was just a great overview of um, yeah, what, what good behavior means and how as classroom teachers and, uh, and leaders that we can facilitate it. Did I, did I miss anything there? No, I'd, I'd agree with all of that. I mean, Tom's a great public speaker. Yeah, he's you know, he, He's really, really good. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of what he says isn't rocket science. A lot of it is, as you say, stuff we know already. But when it's presented in such a sort of common sense way uh, by somebody that's engaging you, it, it, it makes for you know, something really powerful. Um, I was interested in, in, in the fact that he talked about behaviour is everything that pupils do. So it's mm. not just misbehaviour. Yes. Uh, he called it culture demonstrated, which I really liked. Mm. Um, and, and he talked about leaders needing to make the weather within their school. What does good behaviour look like in all kinds of different circumstances? So the dinner queue, yes. walking down the corridor, lining up for classroom, all those things. You know, Don't just think about behaviour as one thing. Really break it down into the little uh, everyday bits and bobs that make up you know, what goes on in a school day. Um, he talks about you know really practicing those routines and he had mentioned the fact that it, it, you know you won't see this in dead poet society because it ain't sexy it's not the kind of thing that people want to think that teachers do but we've got to do it and yes. you know, if you want to create that culture uh, it's the only way to do it and the, the, the big uh, thing that I took took out of this was about routines. Yes. You know, as many routines as you can possibly set in, you know, in place in your school, as you say, the 90% thing, uh, and, and that will really help to, to sort of promote that behaviour. Yeah, and for me, and I, this has been a recurring theme ever since I interviewed uh, John, I was getting the names the wrong way around, Ann Watson and John Mason. When John talks about planning being visualising, uh, planning lessons being visualising lessons, it's a similar thing with behaviour, right? Like, you, you can't just assume kids are going to behave well. You've got to visualise, what does that good behaviour look like? When I ask a question, what do I want my... How do I want my kids to behave? What what will that look like when I'm stood in front of them? Because then you can better prepare for it. Um, and I think the other thing that, that Tom mentioned, which I liked, was also having routines in place to deal with good behaviour. I think a lot of the focus goes on what are we going to do if a kid misbehaves, but what are we going to do if a kid behaves well to make that a model for other kids to follow? And I think a lot of the focus, certainly for me, on behaviour is folks skewed towards bad behaviour. But if we can make good behaviour the norm, reward it, showcase it, then... Um, yeah, I think we're on to a winner. Mm. So I thought yeah. it was a, a wonderful session. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, Simon, we split up at this point, didn't mm. we? And you stayed in the main hall, and, and I went off somewhere else. So, so tell us about the session that you saw. Yeah, well, I, I saw uh, Carl Hendrick and Robin first, and obviously authors of the great book that came out last year about what evidence looks like in the classroom. Uh, and, and that was the theme of their talk, actually, was, was sort of what they found from their book and what they'd done within their schools and their context uh, to try and create a research culture and an evidence culture. And they based it around three questions, the three questions being who needs evidence? anyway uh, what is it that you need to do to sort of generate this culture uh, and what does it look like in the classroom obviously that will link it into to the book um, 
started with a really interesting uh, sort of analogy from medicine, which I wasn't aware of, and it was it was this idea uh, that doctors used to leave the scrubs and the hands unwashed, so they'd go from patient to patient, and this could be from an operation through to delivering a child, through to you know giving someone um, some kind of treatment for something else, uh, but they never washed their hands and they never washed their aprons, um, and the reason being that gentlemen had clean hands and doctors were gentlemen, so it wasn't <laughs> right. necessary. And then this researcher did a bit of research into um, looking what happened if they did wash their hands. Yep. Uh, and lo and behold, he found that you know infant mortality went down, <laughs> patient survival rates went up, um, as we obviously, it's obvious to us now, but at the time, um, it was outrageous that, that he'd come up with this with this research, um, and, and there was a big backlash against it. You know, the doctors thought, no, no, he, he's wrong. You know, that this is not the thing that's causing these these things to happen. Um, I found that really interesting because the, the analogy was drawing there was obviously, you know, the, the backlash that comes in schools mm. when there's a particular type of new evidence that comes out that might go uh, against thinking. He called it the Semmelweis reflex, um, and it's basically a, a reflex-like tendency to reject new evidence that comes out. Um, and that obviously does happen in, in certain aspects of, of teaching. Um, so he talked about, you know, what is it that we might need to do? How, how might we go about generating this sort of culture within, within our schools? And he, they started really with very simple things. So discuss with colleagues, you know, just sit down and, and talk to people at break, after school, with a cup of tea, whatever, um, and just talk about things. Um, and then maybe go on to read some books or blogs or anything like that, yeah, whatever takes your fancy in that, in that regard. Observe things, so go into classrooms, preferably go into other schools. Mm. Um, you know, if there's something that another school's doing that's evidence-informed, that they're doing well, go and see them actually do it. Um, and then, and he said this one, you know, is open to personal preference, write about it. So he said it could be uh, as little as a tweet, Yes. Um, or just a little professional journal that you keep yes. that no one's ever going to read apart from you. Or if you're really brave, you might want to write a blog about it or something like that. Um, but just that act of sort of, that, that process that you go through with the discussion and the reading and the talking about it and the observing and the writing, being a really good, simple and free, uh, or, or virtually free, um, model for sort of uh, generating that kind of culture I think within you're right. your just, school. Just on that, Simon, and mm. again, I found out when I was, was writing the book, it's only when you start writing something down that mm. you kind of pull everything together, you crystallise it in a structure yeah. that makes sense. I, that's absolutely brilliant advice. And as you say, mm. it doesn't need to be public or anything no. like that. That's wonderful advice, mm. that. Just, just yeah, write. It's so powerful uh, when you write stuff down. Yeah, and, and, and that links into something that we found quite successful here. Since we became a research school, we started a, a journal club. Uh, and basically, the way it works is um, I email all staff at the start of um, a new half term mm -hmm. with a paper that we're going to look at at the end of that half term. Oh, okay. So they've got five, six, seven weeks to read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always make it something that's relatively short and easy to read. So, Can you give us an example? Um, something like principles of instruction from Rosenstein, that kind of thing. Yep. Something that people are going to take something away from. Um, something that's not too abstract and, and is going to be relevant to their practice. And I usually limit to sort of five to six uh, sides of A4 in length. Anything longer than that, and I think I'm going to lose people here. Yeah. You know, it's got to be something reasonably short. And has that um, gone down well? Really well, actually. It's completely voluntary. Uh, I think as soon as you make it not voluntary, um, you get that resentment creeping mm. in. We normally get, I'd say, about 15, 16 staff coming. Um yeah, uh, and, and I always give um, sort of things to read around. So if you want to go away and read this book, for example, then yeah. you can do, but that's by, by no means uh, necessary. And what does the session look like when you bring people together at the, at the end? Uh, basically, I mean, we split up into little groups um, and we, we just really, we prepare in advance sort of our takeaways from that paper. So three, four things that we think are the big implications from that paper for teaching and learning practice. And what we try to do then is summarise that on a side of A4. So, so our, our, we think, if I was going to share this with the whole school, obviously, yeah. you know, we've got 15 people here who want to read a six-page document, but the rest maybe yeah. don't. If I was going to summarise this onto one side of A4, what are the key takeaways? Um, a bit like uh, the Oliver Caviglioli one of uh, Principles of Instruction, yes. the one side. Obviously, we don't draw like he does because we <laughs> haven't got the talent, uh, but uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and that then we share with staff as a sort of takeaway from our sessions. And it means that, you know, across the year, we end up with six one side of A4 uh, bits of paper with key ideas from these research. And have you, seen, have you seen kind of positive results 
from that? Have, have changes started to happen? Yeah, they, they, they certainly have. Yeah, I mean, I mean we're, you know, we've got people who are implementing things that have come out of those papers within their classroom. We read um, Sweller's Cognitive Load Theory as, as one of our um, journal clubs. In fact, it was the first one based on Dylan Williams' tweet about how important it is. Uh, so that was the first one that we, that we did. Um, and I know particularly in science, actually, that, that that's led to quite a few changes taking place that haven't just been isolated to the people within the journal club but yes. also spread to the teachers who That's see it nice. going on in classrooms i mean um in this school we're quite open a lot of the, the classrooms are sort of glass um or, or certainly have a lot of windows and so people see what's going on in each of the classrooms a lot you know what are they doing why are they doing that so things like the example problem pairs for example that, that, that you talk about a lot um, is now spreading quite a lot throughout the school and not just in maths. Um, again, particularly in science, that, that's, uh, that's that's great. Really and it, again, you just need it. You just need mm. to start small, doesn't mm. it? And then it, if it's working, people start talking about it. People start trying it out, and it grows. I like that. Yeah, and it, and it's more successful, I find, doing it that way than having a whole school CPD day yes. where it's oh here's another idea that we've all now got to go away and try. Yes. Uh, and those are the ones that end up being ditched a few weeks later because you were told you had to try it. Yes. Whereas this idea of sort of growing it slowly, I think is much more likely to have a long-term that, impact. That's great. And I know we need to get back to this session, but yeah. last, last question on this side. Yeah. So you, the Sweller and the, the Rosenshine paper, any, any other papers that you, you've, you've tried with, this, with your staff and you'd recommend that, that people look at if they want to introduce something similar to what you've done? Um, there's a few. Off the top of my head, I can't think of them. But um, if you go on our research school uh, website, then there is a link to all of our documents. Ah, all the documents are there. So I'll give you that link. I'll put link a link and, to that on the yeah, show. Yeah, brilliant. Notes. And then you can find it. Perfect. Yeah, and, oh. and the future ones will go on there as well. That's great. Okay, back to the Robin and Carl session. Any, anything else? Any other takeaways? Uh, yeah, I mean, they also talked about... Um, what leaders can do actually to develop and, and they talked about research evidence being written into the school development plan so you know th this is it's such an important part of what's going on in schools obviously you've got to get your leadership team on board for that to happen um, and they also talked about um, Professor Obko's poor proxies for learning um, and how these were in a way the equivalent in um, teaching of the blood spattered apron from the uh, historical ah. doctors and how these were things that you know actually people think that when you go into a classroom and the kids are all sat working in silence that's a good example of learning taking place yes. uh, and it might be but it, it might not be yes. uh, and, and so um, yeah those poor proxies for learning um, were, were shared and, and talked about also this idea that motivation um, doesn't often lead to achievement, but achievement does lead to motivation. And that was a, a real big sort of takeaway from that session is actually um, instead of spending um, hours and huge amounts of money finding ways to motivate your students, just get them to do well and actually yes. you know, get them to see success, whatever that means for them, and they will um, be motivated by that success. And I thought that, that linked in uh, nicely to something that you said as well um, about giving students a quiz that you know they're going to do pretty well on. Mm. I think you talked about year 11 resit, uh, year 12 resit class. Uh, get, to get that taste of success. Yes. Because that then leads to the motivation and not the other way around. Absolutely right. Um, and then they, they just took, um, they, they focused in on, on one section from the book. Uh, so they talked about what it looked like in the classroom and how they sort of went about uh, getting the people on board to, to take part in the book. Uh, talked about Dylan William, who, who um, helped with the chapter on, on feedback and sort of the things that they took from that. So expanding time uh, given to students to review work, how independent learning is a long game. It could take three, four, five years. Um, and independent learning, uh, you know, on its own, you can't do until you're an expert really in, in, in whatever it is that you're doing and that we shouldn't be saying right independent learning let's get our students doing that because it, it's not likely to, to lead uh, to, to great success uh, there was a, a nice quote from Carl at the end actually which uh, I, I felt really summed up how I feel uh, which was the more evidence I read the more confused I am <laughs> yes. um, and I think that that says I think that speaks to anybody that's you know maybe historically hasn't engaged in, in evidence but now is doing yeah. um, because you just you just start to question absolutely everything yes. you do and thinking oh my goodness you know I found this paper but now I found the other 10 <laughs> yeah, papers absolutely. that I want to go away and read so I thought that was a really nice sort of takeaway from the session as well um, and, and, and that 
you know, if you are feeling like that today, that's okay because we yes. all are. <laughs> that's that's brilliant. Brilliant summary of that, Simon. And yeah, I think for me, I've kind of gone through three stages of, of research. The first 12 years, I just wasn't aware that any research existed. Then for about a sweet honeymoon period of about three months, everything I read, I fully believed and was just the best thing I'd ever seen in my life. And then after that, I started to read things that brought called into question all the stuff I've read. And yeah, it's, it's classic Dunning-Kruger effect. The more you know, the more aware you are of what you don't know. It's yeah, I think it's yeah, a really important point to make. Yeah. That's brilliant. So um, yeah, I, unfortunately, I, I couldn't see uh, Robin and Carl, but I've, I've been lucky enough to have them, on, have them on the podcast because I went to see Mark Healy. Now, um, I, I met Mark in the, in the bar last night and I'd already spotted his session. And it's on one of my obsessions, which is sleep. And the title of this session was Sleep, Our Low-Hanging Fruit and Well-Being. And I just thought that that's something that really interests me. And he made the point, and I did I did psychology um, as an A-level, um, so I have a tiny little bit of knowledge of sleep. And he, he made the point that, that sleep consists of five stages. There's light sleep, which is about 10% of the total amount of sleep. Uh, sorry, the lightest sleep, which is 10%, followed by stage two, light sleep, that's about 45%. Then slow wave sleep, which is 5%. Then deep sleep, that's stage four, which is 15%. And finally, REM sleep, which is the final stage, which is 20, 20%. And we kind of cycle through these. But here's the thing that fascinated me, Simon, about this. Those final four stages, those final two stages, so stage four, deep sleep, that's the key for, for uh, kind of physio physio physiological changes. Um, and stage five is the key for uh, psychological changes, kind of biochemical processes. And if you don't get enough of those two, it screws up your decision-making processes for the next day. And the first interesting takeaway was if you're drunk, so if you hit alcohol, you just cycle through stages one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. You never get into these really beneficial stages. So, and I've experienced this myself, uh, all too recently is that you can you can have a few bit of a drink you can be asleep asleep allegedly for mm. eight hours but you wake up and you still feel crap and you can't make these decisions you're not on the ball because you haven't accessed those two final bits of sleep so i found that interesting mm. but it wasn't just about drinking there was a lot, a lot more going on and um, a real big takeaway from this, and I just think this is so important, and I'm going to get Mark on the podcast because um, there's just so much we can learn from this. It's about workload, and he said that you, you get home late at night, um, and you're on your emails, and you're sending an email at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Um, and you, you're not switching off and then you're trying to get to and, and you're doing it because you care about the job you care about your kids you teach you want to do as good a job as you can so you're putting in all these hours and you lie in bed and kind of thoughts are still swimming around in your head and you wake up the next day and you're tired but it's okay because you've got all this work done and so on but his point is if you care about your kids and you want to do a good job the best thing you can do is really cut down on your workload at night because if you are not getting a good sleep, you are not at your best the next day. You are not teaching effective, as effectively as you could be. You're snapping at kids. You're snapping at colleagues. Your decision-making process is impaired. So he's saying you've got to draw the line somewhere. You've, you've, you've got to cut it out. And I, I, I talked about this on, I think it was on the when I was interviewed for the NTETM. I've, I've been reading uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport. And he makes the point that to get into a state of deep focused work, you, you, um, you've got to train yourself to not be distracted. And it really resonated with what Mark was talking about. Because he said that you're lying in bed and you think, oh, I'll just have one last little check on my phone. And maybe, oh, a little email pops up. Oh, I'll send that. But that moment there, it's works then playing on your mind. It's not 30 seconds. That's then buzzing around in your head for the next half hour or so. But his other point was, it may feel good for you sending an email at seven, eight o'clock, but what about the person who receives it? They then get it through, and even if they don't feel the need to reply straight away, then it's buzzing around their mind, and this is affecting their sleep, and so on. And it was just really, really wonderful just to think, sleep's important. I mean, it's so obvious, sleep's important, but we really hamper our chances of getting good sleep by keeping on working into the night. And the best thing we can do for our kids is not to keep putting in these hours, but to have some switch off time. And then just towards the end, he was talking about sleep hygiene, the advice that's given out to kids that he gives out at his school. Don't go out on your devices at night, turn off the blue light on your iPhone, avoid caffeine and all this. And, and what really struck me about this, and it goes back to what you were saying before and what Tom Bennett was saying, 
that it's all well and good putting that on a poster or on a leaflet to kids saying, right, this is good sleep hygiene. But unless that becomes part of your culture, unless you're demonstrating and talking about it, it's as effective as putting up some behavior rules on a poster or emailing them out. So it really got me thinking that if we want kids to be sleeping better and teachers to be sleeping better, we need to make that part of the conversation in the classroom. So I'm going to genuinely, when I see my year 11s after Easter, I'm going to be talking to them about sleep and I'm going to be saying to them, let me know what time you went to bed. So the next day, tell me what time you went to bed. Who got the most sleep last night? I'm going to make this a real mm. positive thing. Who switched the phone off first? Who sent the um, who, who sent the latest text? You shouldn't be sending it at that time, blah, blah. Talking about it because it's not enough just to say to kids once, this is a good idea. If it's so important, it needs to be part of the conversation. So then it becomes part of the culture and so on. So it was... It really got me thinking about sleep. How's your sleep? Well, uh, it, it, it varies, to be honest. I mean, you know, it's really interesting what you were saying there about about this idea of, of, of us as teachers not getting enough sleep. And I think it's I think it's a really serious problem, mm. actually. Uh, possibly, you know, it isn't recognised just how serious it is. And I think perhaps certainly over the years we've developed this strange culture in teaching where it's almost seen as sort of bragging rights yes who, who can you know who was still up at midnight marking and i think as schools we really should be challenging that and you know if, if somebody does tell us you know i was still up at half 11 marking my books it should be oh right okay we need to help you we need to do something yeah. about this yeah, because, yeah, yeah. because it, it's completely unsustainable and, and it's right i mean we've all been there haven't we when we've uh, We've had to sit up at night doing, doing some work for whatever reason. And and you are different the next day. Yes. And you are snappy with the kids. And it's not their fault. They're just being the same as they always Absolutely. are. Absolutely. But you, you know, have changed considerably because of your lack of sleep. I think the thing about the devices is interesting. That's quite a new thing. You know, we're talking sort of, what, last 10 years or mm. so. You go about further than that and th- this problem didn't exist. Um and I think it, it, I think we need to bring back the alarm clock personally because the the reason I sleep with my phone next to my bed is because that's my alarm clock. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, that is interesting. You know, uh, but then I start looking at it, and you know, like you yes. say, you, you, you notice you notice you've got a message through or a tweet through, and so you have a quick look, and then one thing leads to another. Um, and I think if I just had a blooming alarm clock there and put my phone in the other room, yes. it, it would stop me doing that. But that I, is I, very interesting. That and one thing I've I've tried to do, and it's flipping hard this time. But again, from reading Cal Newport's. I'm trying to force myself to avoid distractions. So uh, a classic, this happened um, a couple of nights ago. Uh, me and my wife are watching telly, um, uh, and I've made a conscious thing now. When I'm watching telly, I have my phone way out of the way because I can't, I can't follow any film or any complex program. I'll flip and clue what's going on because I'm on Twitter, and then I'm looking up, and someone's been murdered, and I have no idea what, what's happened. So my wife goes mad. So now I put my phone other side of the room, and it's great. But then my wife got up to go to the toilet, and what do I do straight away? Reach and get the phone. And what I'm trying to do now is train myself that in those moments when I've nothing to do, just to kind of enjoy the moment a bit, just to sit there and think, all right, for the next 30 seconds, I'm just going to think about something or just just stare into space or whatever. Not feel the need to always be t- plugged in and switched on, but it's flipping hard. It is hard. And I say it's, it, it's a new problem, but it's yes. a growing problem and it's oh, serious. Yeah. I and mean, we get kids that are, that are almost literally addicted to these mm. devices. I mean, I'm bad enough. But yeah, they, correct, know, they, correct. They are, they are worse than me. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's really hard for them to actually put it down or switch off from Absolutely. it. You know, and, and I think that's... Um, why a lot of schools have implemented sort of no mobile phone policies because yes. the, the, just that temptation, you yeah, know, and yeah, they, yeah. they can't regulate themselves because we can't regulate ourselves. No, correct. You know, if, if I if I was using my phone as a calculator and a tweet came through, I'd be on Twitter. Of course, of you know, course. And so if I can't do it at my yes. age as a, as, a, as a teaching professional, what chance have they got? Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. So I think it, yeah, I think it's I think there's a lot more to come in this area. I think I, so. I really think there is. And it, it's a shame I didn't get to see Mark's talk, but uh, it's interesting to. It was great, and as I say, I'm going to get get him on the podcast. Mm. He's he's a brilliant, like like Tom Bennett as well. I think they're both from Glasgow. They are both. Yeah, he's a a fantastic presenter as well. So next up, and you're going to take the lead on this one was was Tom Sherrington, and I'm pleased to say I've 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 tweeted about this. I love his book, The Learning Rainforest, and I'm pleased to say that Tom's agreed to come on the podcast in the near future as well. So, what did you take away from Tom? Yeah, I mean, I've never heard Tom speak, um, and I've got his book, but I haven't read it yet. It's one of those that's sitting on the shelf with with many many others, and having 
seen him today is he's gone to the top of the pile. He's a good speaker. He's a really good speaker and it was a great presentation actually. Um, And he, uh, I mean the title of his his, uh, talk was No Can Do's Uh, and basically he's talking about sort of lists of what kids can and can't do and checklists, tick lists, all those different things. But it was about assessment in general really. Um, And he talked about the fact that assessment is feedback to us as teachers. It's Mm. about telling us a story and if it doesn't inform teachers in classroom and help pupils to see what they need to do to improve it's not doing its job yes. and it doesn't really have a purpose. Um, he talked about reporting to parents and I found this quite interesting and how um, a lot of schools have invented um, these really quite meaningless um, <laughs> yeah. reporting systems um, but that they, that they, they hang an awful lot of importance on. So uh, he gave a couple of demonstrations of, of sort of reports that have come from, from people he knows um, which basically says, you know, attitude to learning in one subject was A and in another one it was B. Um, and, you know, said, saying to them, well, what, what are you doing differently? Like, I'm not doing anything differently. It's just that those two teachers have different expectations and different standards. And that's why I've got different grades. And, and you know, that kind of, of, of almost meaningless, meaningless data. We called it data porn yeah, it and how, nice, how yeah. schools are sort of obsessed with generating spreadsheets full of stuff that data managers can work on. And he said on that as well, because when I saw that, I thought, all right, is that just relevant to behaviour and attitude? But he made the point as well that if you're if you're trying to assign levels or target grades and you have to say whether a kid's mm. secure at that or exceeding that, it's exactly the same. And I've been there, I don't know about you, yeah. Simon, but I've been there myself. Like, yeah, yeah. is that kid a secure seven? Mm. Oh, yeah, secure. Put that down. Absolutely meaningless, Absolutely isn't it? Absolutely it is. And, and this idea of we're now in, obviously, life after levels, but what a lot of schools have actually done is just reinvent levels mm. but under a different name. So when you're looking at your, you know, your mastery descriptions of exceeding and, yes. and whatever the other ones are, um, that basically is a level, isn't it? it? And it, it we're just putting it, it you know, it's not a number, it's a word, but it's basically uh, <laughs> yeah. reinventing the levels. So, so, so that, that, was, uh, that was quite interesting, and, and, and he talks about that for a while. And, uh, and then he talks about what, what, what should we be doing. Yes. Um, and he talks about how actually what we should be doing is quite messy, um, and you can't always put it on a spreadsheet. And for that reason, a lot of leadership teams don't like it yes. because it can't be measured as easily. Um, but he was talking about the fact that, you know, it, it will look different in different subjects. It will look different in maths to how it looks in art, and necessarily so. Yes. And trying to fit it all and streamline it all into one assessment system, which has numbers or grades or whatever, um, it's pointless because it ain't going to have an impact um, and, and he gave us a few takeaways really to sort of think about um, and, and things that he would recommend that you looked at if, if you were uh, if you were looking at helping students to improve so he talked about redraft and redo um, which is, is basically um, getting kids to do the work again you know mm. redrafting it redoing it but he also talked about this idea of, of really sharing explicitly with kids what excellence looks yes. like. Um, you know, what science work would constitute excellence in year seven? Um, because unless you do that, unless they've got that thing that they're aiming towards, well, you can't really say that they've not done it properly because you didn't yeah. show them what properly was. And w- whenever I see things like that, I think, oh, does that apply to maths? But it mm. does, right? Because I was thinking, say you take some kind of complex equation, mm. like... For me, solving that excellence isn't just getting X equals seven or whatever. It's setting it out beautifully. So line by line, you can see the exact operation that's happened to both sides. And it's it's not saying I can solve an equation, put a bit tick by that meaningless statement. It's my equation looks like this and I've seen what excellence looks like and I'm going to keep going until I get to that because this is my goal. It's not aiming towards getting a tick of a pointless learning object or a can-do statement. So I think we can still do it in maths. What would you agree? I would agree, yeah. And I think that, that links in really nicely to things like example problem pairs because mm. you've, got, you've got your example, which, which is modelling yes. that, that great mathematics that you yes. want them to replicate. And by giving them the chance to replicate it immediately afterwards, you know, that there is no excuse or reason to not follow the model that you have you have Absolutely. just done with them. So yeah, I, I do think that, that that there's things to share in maths there. He talked about rehearsing and repeating. Uh, I think this is very relevant to maths because mm. it, it related to practice and drill. And now he said some of the best maths teaching he's ever seen has had lots of lots of punchy sort of drilling and rehearsal and practice. And it doesn't have to be dull and boring. It yes. can be. It certainly can be. But it doesn't have to be. It can be quite fast-paced and uh, and, and, and engaging. Um, so I, I liked that idea, and I thought that that was a really good one. Um, he mentioned um, relearning and retesting. Yes. I thought that was a good one. So quick quizzes. Um, he, he, he described a model. Um, I think it was his wife's school, but I can't quite remember. Mm. Um, where he said that they. Um, 
and it wasn't maths, I think it was science, but they basically give the students a test um, in advance of them sitting it. So, yes. so like a quiz that they're going to do next week. Yes. And then they give them all the tools that they need to do well on that test next yes. week. Um, and then, you know, I think that would quite surprise a lot of kids at first. I thought yeah, you're showing yeah. us in advance. Well, yeah, because I want you to do well on it. And then they go away and they work on it and they, you know, they might do something in lessons, but homework or whatever. And then they take it the following week. And it builds confidence because you're showing those kids that if you, if you follow what I've just given you to do, there's the question there's how to do it then you can be successful in this yes. quiz that we're going to have next week I rather than springing it on people as almost like yeah, catching them out absolutely and the first time I heard something like that was when I interviewed Danny Quinn from, from Michaela mm. who do something similar where they they tell kids what the questions are going to be and I, like you say provide them with the resources to prepare for it and then, as well as building confidence, it builds good study habits as well, because kids will start to learn that if I look at this material, and if I revise in an effective way, and this will link to one of the final points um, Tom made about stuff being quizzable, mm. um, then if I, if I learn that material in an effective way, I will get good, I will be able to answer the the. the, the Questions, get good marks, get my confidence goes there. So it's teaching good habits as well. Yeah. I thought it was a really nice idea. Cheers, I really liked that. And, and coming back to your idea about Quizzable, he, he mentioned that we should be designing resources which are Quizzable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, he didn't, he did, I don't think he called them knowledge organisers, but he showed what looked to me like yes. an extract from a knowledge organiser uh, with historical dates in and, and facts and um you know, it's very quizzable because of the way it was structured. So yes. you could literally just remove the column with the dates Absolutely. on. Uh, whereas another model uh, of something set out a bit more messily uh, would not be as easily quizzable because you can't remove things as easily. Absolutely. And I thought that was really important. And again, very simple and, and, sorry, and very straightforward, but um, actually just... Um, making it quizzable and, and, and then testing yourself again and again and again and um, just just some really simple ideas and I think one of the reasons I like Tom's session so much is that it, it wasn't stuff that you're going to go away and is going to massively increase your workload Correct. if anything it's going to reduce it and I thought that was really interesting and that, and that I, th I think we need we need more of this and we, you know th this these simple ideas that are actually just really good teaching. Yeah, correct. Um, we, we need a lot more of it. And, and he left us with, with just a couple of questions to ask ourselves. Uh, go back to your school, sort of look at your data system and your assessment system and ask, does it help you improve your teaching and does it help students learn? And if the answer to those questions are no, well, you're wasting your time. Now, yeah. obviously, as a classroom teacher you might not be able to do much about sure. that but you do you could sow the seeds you, know, you could talk to your head of department who could talk to a senior leader or whatever and I think it's important that we we do question that and one of the things that that, that we sort of teach people to do uh, on our research leads development courses is to actually be critical of things that are going on in your school, mm. almost like a critical friend. You know, don't be don't be horrible about it. Don't <laughs> yeah, go into yeah. getting this all wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. But part of engaging with the research evidence is actually having to ask yourself some difficult questions Absolutely. and be prepared for some difficult answers. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that that's um, it was interesting because I'm not sure if it was Tom that, that tweeted this out um, a few months ago saying. If your entire sort of Sims database of assessment data was lost overnight, would it make a difference? Exactly. And you know, if the answer to that's no, what on earth are you doing? Yeah, I, yeah, I think it was Tom. That yeah. was a brilliant tweet. Yeah, mm. yeah, it was a great, great session, Matt. And then you again, you drew the short story, Sam, because again, you're almost kind of morally obliged to come to come to my session um, next. So we won't bang on too much about <laughs> this. But what, what was any takeaways from that? Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. Obviously, I've read your book, uh, taken a lot from your book, and, and, and an awful lot of people have, and a lot of people are talking about talking about it today. Um, and you focused in on just two aspects of, of, of what came out of that book. So, your example problem pairs, and also talked about intelligent practice. Um, my big takeaway, really, from that was was the variation theory and, and how it impacted upon sets of questions. Um, and you shared some that you developed um, around uh, finding the mean of, of sets of numbers and. You know, I've certainly been there where you, you show you show students how to find the mean and then you just give them 10 completely unlinked, mm. completely random sets of data. Sometimes you don't even prepare them in advance, you just round yeah, the board. Yeah, you know, let, let, let's be honest, and, and because it is dead quick and dead easy yep. to do that. But you're not really making the kids think. Um, and, you know, as, as Willingham says, you know, memory is the, the residue of thought. And if they're not thinking hard about something, mm. then there's every chance that they're not going to remember how to do it. So the idea of just changing uh, one little thing between one question and the next, but that promotes sort of a question, they have to think about it. So the example, the first example that you gave was if the first set of numbers was 2, 4, 5, 6, 13. 
uh, find the mean of those. And then the second one was two, four, five, six, eight. So um, the total had reduced by five, so there were five numbers, so the mean had reduced by one. Uh, but getting them to think about that, and it developed from there, so in the next one you doubled all the numbers right. uh, and got them to think before they actually worked it out. Think about what you think might happen. Yeah, the, the um, phrase I use is reflect, expect, check. Reflect yeah. on what's changed from example one to example two. Once you've reflected, what do you then expect the answer to be? Mm. And then carry out the procedure to check. And I just think it's a, a, a powerful kind of combination, that. I do. And, and I liked, I think that there was a question from the floor um, about, you know, what if some kids don't expect anything to happen? Um, and that's fine because they'll just be doing the questions that yeah. they would have been doing before Absolutely. anyway. So, you know, they're not losing out. Absolutely. Some kids in the room will be gaining. And by, they by may, that. those kids who are just doing the questions, they may then, when they get their answer, then realise how it, how it comes. So, it's yeah, for me, it's it's win-win. Like, I, I don't see a disadvantage to it. Apart from it's just hard to write the questions. And I think and I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think, I think it's... it's to me, it's a no-brainer. You know, if you're going to write a set of ten questions, it's much better to have questions like that than, than randomly generated ones. Uh, but it is a time issue, isn't it? And and I can tell by the, I was thinking through the process that I would have to go to to write those questions, and, and it's hard. Yeah. Uh, and it's nice. It's, it's something I think I'd enjoy doing. It is nice. Um, it is. But yes. at the same time, um, it's hard. And I think that that perhaps is 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 one takeaway there. So maybe um, as we get more skilled at it, it might be something we do sort of collaboratively I in teams so. and departments or whatever. Because I think if if you're an island sort of doing all that by yourself, you're yeah. actually going to find your planning time go up, go up quite a lot. Um, but no, really enjoyable session. Got a lot out of it. Cheers, man. And it's on my radar to create the world's biggest kind of collection of these. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's the, the plans are plans are efforts to do yeah. that. And then the final session we were both in, but you were in an unfortunate seating <laughs> position where you, where you couldn't see the screen. I blame the organizer. <laughs> yeah. Was Harry Fletcher would uh, on responsive teaching now. Again, one of the main reasons I wanted to come and do research ed was firstly because I'd never done one before, but also I wanted to meet some of these people I've just been following for, for years. So Tom Sherrington, I've, I've just idolised him for, for many years. And Harry's another one. I've, I've never never met him. Um, and he's massive into formative assessment like I am. Um, so he was the first name that I was straight down to his session. It was packed out, wasn't it? It as was. Well, it was for, for the last, last yeah. session of the day. It was on responsive teaching, which is his new book that, that's uh, coming out very, very soon. And, and there was a few really good, well, for me anyway, really big takeaways. The first was, so responsive teaching um, is kind of Harry and Dylan Williams' preferred term for performative assessment. But a really key point I thought Harry made was that responsive teaching and formative assessment strategy are all well and good. But if you haven't set up the conditions to allow that responsive teaching to be effective, you're wasting your time. So before you even start thinking about the strategies for formative assessment, You've got to first specify exactly what you want your kids to learn and be really specific about it. Then you've got to design a really focused lesson, and this for me linked into cognitive load theory, chuck out all the extraneous load, all the redundant information and so on. Then you've got to model excellence, and this has been a recurring theme throughout the day. You've got to show kids what excellence looks like. And that is much, much better for than, than lesson objectives and um, this excellence. And again, this this was a, uh, what Harry related back to what, what Tom was talking about. The lesson objective is essentially meaningless to kids. Show kids what excellence looks like when you model it. And once you've got those three things in place, only then do you start thinking about this responsive teaching. And he, I mean, he was preaching to the choir with me on this one, that with multiple choice questions. Lots of teachers, and I come across this all the time, lots of teachers don't like multiple choice questions. But if they're good multiple choice questions, if they're a good diagnostic multiple choice question, if they identify specific misconceptions, then there is no better form of questioning for me in terms of getting accurate, uh, quick, efficient uh, indication of your class's understanding and obviously for maths that's why I built diagnostic questions and we've got science questions on there history geography and so on but yeah so my favorite tool of uh, responsive teaching or formative assessment is multiple choice questions but my big big takeaway was that it's no good you can have the best question in the world but if you haven't set up the conditions to make asking that question effective. If kids have no idea how to answer it, if you haven't modeled excellence, then you're wasting your time. And the final thing um, Harry touched upon was feedback. 
which again has been a recurring theme through, through, throughout the day. And I know it's at the forefront of a lot of teachers' minds. And Harry again said, There's, you are wasting your time focusing on fixing feedback. And I've been there myself, marking for three or four hours on a Sunday afternoon. And if you haven't sorted the curriculum out, the goal, what you want your, t- what you want your kids to learn, if they haven't seen what excellence looks like, and if the task that you've set them isn't worthwhile, if you haven't got all those four things in place, then you're wasting your time with feedback. Um, so before you start fixing feedback and reducing workload and using all of Dylan Williams' advice on feedback, fix all the other things first. And for me, that 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 was just a big, big takeaway that responsive teaching and feedback is built on a foundation of a really well planned lesson and executed explanation and once you've got those in place then you start thinking about responsive teaching and feedback i don't know if there's anything else yeah i mean i'd agree with all that i really enjoyed the session i mean i'd never met harry before either but he's He's another good presenter as well he's a he's a very good presenter yeah really good um a couple of things a couple of things that i took from it Um, he was talking about um making sure that your lessons had an academic purpose and that's yeah. it so we talked about obviously as schools we want to uh, want to get kids to learn stuff but we also want to develop the characters yes. but actually a maths lesson is probably not the best place to do that if you teach them algebra you're teaching them algebra <laughs> yeah, leave all yeah. the other stuff for form time for yeah. PSHE for Duke of Edinburgh whatever it is that you happen to do within your schools uh, and focus on the thing that's the, the main thing for that lesson um, he talked about how becoming an expert depends on having a, me- a mental model of what excellence looks like so again that's the second time would heard that because that came through in, in Tom Sherrington's talk uh, so actually showing them you know what do you mean by a beautiful paragraph a great sentence a really good performance you know going back to maths a really well structured um, sort of solution to, to, to a, an equation uh, that kind of thing and if you're not showing them those things you can't possibly expect them to get there because they haven't seen what it looks like um, again the second time for the day that we saw Coe's uh, poor proxies for learning come up so they came up in in uh, Carl and Robin's talk earlier in the day. Um, It talks about exit tickets as being a good way of sort of finding out information from that lesson, but not necessarily one that you had to take away and do a lot of marking on. So literally one or two questions that you can flick through in two minutes, really just to give you, obviously we're we're not seeing learning there, we're seeing seeing performance in the lesson, but um, if if they've all not got it, then you know what you're gonna do next lesson. And that idea of having something in every lesson that informs your planning for the next one. Yes. I thought that was a really important point. I really liked that. And, and I think the multiple choice questions link and the hinge questions um, it is a really good one there. Um, it talks about, as you said, about developing that culture. I thought maybe, uh, I mean, I personally use Plickers um, to, to use with the multiple choice questions. I think that's a, a nice way of doing it because it, it, it stops some of the things Harry talked about, like um, students waiting to see what somebody else puts up before yes. they answer because uh, yeah, um, Plickers is, is almost you know, anonymous. It's very difficult to see what somebody else um, votes for but no a, a really interesting session and um, very well attending considering it was right at the end of the day and, and you know it, it, it did get the graveyard shift unfortunately <laughs> poor Harry but yeah it, it was great well there we go and yeah it's just again this has been my first research ad, but it certainly won't be my last it's been a, a wonderful wonderful day and, and thank you for, for organising it it must have, must have taken some time but hopefully it's been an enjoyable experience for you too absolutely it has it's been absolutely wonderful and I think um my message to anyone that's thinking about going to a research app would be just go. I mean, yeah. it, it, I think it can seem, because it's got the research tag attached to it, it can seem a bit intimidating. Yes. Is it going to be full of people stroking the beard? You know, <laughs> yes. that, that, is it going to be completely <laughs> over my head? Yeah. But it won't be. I mean, you might find some sessions that are, but you just sure. don't go to them. Of you know, you, you pick the ones that are going to be relevant to, to, to you. And almost everybody in attendance today was a practising teacher. Absolutely. Estelle Morris asked the question at the start, put your hand up if you're a teacher, put your hand up if you're a researcher uh, or similar. Uh, and the split was was almost 100%. Correct. You know, it, it, it was great to see. And, and the fact that all these people give up the Saturdays, uh, you know, to go to these conferences is brilliant. So, yeah, absolutely. And we're going to be badgering Tom about running Research at Blackpool 2019. So there we go. So we, fingers crossed we'll both be here and back with a uh, conference takeaway from that. Well, Simon, thank you firstly for organising it. And then secondly, at the end of the day, when you must be absolutely knackered for sitting down with me to talk through this so thank you very much no problem at all thanks Greg